Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word disparity, disparity as a noticeable and usually significant difference or dissimilarity between two ideas, two situations, two conditions, or two things. In spiritual terms, we might say that there is a disparity between the world as it is, the world we see around us with all of its brokenness, and the world as it ought to be. Don't you sense that tension? That things are just not the way that they are supposed to be. That there's an incongruence, an unalignment between the creation that we read about in the book of Genesis, Eden and perfection before God in the world that is ravaged by the sin that we read in chapter 3. But as the redeemed people of God, we are not without recourse. We are not without a voice. We have been called to be salt and light, indeed commanded to be salt and light to the world around us. And we have a responsibility to represent the God who's making all things new, starting with us. But ultimately, outwardly to the world Around us, as we co labor with God in redeeming the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're starting a new series this morning, as I prayed, in the book of Nehemiah. This series, we're going to stop for missions conference and Advent series and maybe one other time. So it's going to take us through about February or so as we get ready into the workup for Easter. I want to encourage you as we go through this series to really take time to focus on the disparities in your world, in your life, and in your heart, and to take a journey with me, to take a journey with God, to allow God to use this book of the Old Testament that we so often pass over as we're looking to get to the good stuff, because there's tremendous truth here about how to take ruins and find redemption. So I want you to consider a a decimated area of your life. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's something happening at work. I want you to consider what's going on in your own heart. Is there a place of ruins and rubble? Maybe a habitual sin that just continues to wreak havoc and steal your joy. I want you to consider a, an issue that's been said, you know, makes you weep or pound the table. Things that say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I want us to do this together. I want us to look at our lives and ask the Lord, how is it that we can begin? Lord, Father, you and I, through the power of the Spirit, how can we begin rebuilding the rubble 
that sin has caused. The first thing we need to understand is that there's a problem. The first thing that we need to gather, the first thing we need to come to is that there is, that we need, first of all, a broken heart. We need to come to grips with the situation as it truly is. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, as we go through this text and we ask God to show us ourselves, to show us him and help us in Christ, trusting him to bridge the gap, live a life that honors the Lord. All right, Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now, to understand who Nehemiah is and the situation that is going on, we need to understand that in 587 BC, the Persians under then Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and sacked Jerusalem. This is not something that should have come to a surprise to the Jews because in Deuteronomy and also in Leviticus, God warned them that if you depart from my covenant, if you begin to live a life that looks like the people to whom I'm sending you among, that you can expect that I will bring people from the outside in to invade your land, to take you away until the time of your discipline has been completed, that you might return to me. It was severe. We read books and texts and read about the horrors of what man is capable of doing, even in or being used by the hand of God to discipline his people. They killed many Jews. Some fled and made it. Some were exiled, often back to the Persian Empire, but certainly all around the Persian world at the time, which at the time was the largest sort of empire that existed. But they brought many of the prominent Jewish families back, like leaders and craftsmen, politicians and elites, back to Babylon. We read about this in the book of Daniel. Daniel was brought back to the Persian Empire in order to serve in the court of the king. Fifteen years after that happened, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who led the armies who sacked Jerusalem, died. He was such a, he was a horrific leader, but he knew how to keep things in order. Let's put it that way. As soon as he died, the empire began to fall apart. And it wasn't long until the Persian Empire fell into rapid decline. Now, the book of Nehemiah recounts 140-some years later a wave of Jews who would go back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the pieces. As Nebuchadnezzar lost the kingdom, new people took over, and they had a different policy, a policy of rebuilding and keeping the peoples within their empire happy in order that they would be able to keep the peace. And so we read about the book of Nehemiah in the year 445 B.C., where Nehemiah is sent back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So, who is this Nehemiah? A little background information. Nehemiah, we know he's the son of Hekeliah, but he was also the cupbearer of the king. Now, when we ring cupbearer, we think just abject slave, someone who just gives wine or someone who drinks the wine before giving it to the king in order that person would die in the event that someone was trying to assassinate the king. In reality, it was much more complex than that. In reality, the cupbearer was someone who became a trusted friend of the king, someone who was a confidant of the king, 
someone who was given apartments in the palace, someone who was sort of the first line of defense to the king. So while we read just a slave, God placed Nehemiah in a specific position so that he could do this specific work about which we read. It says, now it happened, back to the text, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So when we begin to ask ourselves, where do I need to rebuild? Where is God calling me to rebuild? Where is God calling me to act and to be a co-labor in him, in his redemption of the world? We need to stop and intentionally consider the disparities in and around us. This seems obvious, but really it's just take a look around and recognize that there are things going on that should not be happening. The interesting thing here is Nehemiah asks about Jerusalem, the exiles, and the city, everything that's been going on 142 years after Jerusalem was sacked. This is not something that happened last week. Did everyone get out okay? I haven't heard anything. 142 years later, his heart is still broken for his city, for his people, for his nation. So much so that when someone comes back, a group returns, he asks, What's going on? Verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Probably not the news that Nehemiah was hoping to hear. Because in verse 4 it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's grief at the word that his beloved city, the center of God's plan for the center of God's people, was destroyed and ravaged. It's clear that Nehemiah has what Chip Ingram calls a dislocated heart. Sounds painful. Well, it should be. A dislocated heart, an attitude of selfless regard and concern for others, or a righteous indignation toward that which might thrust itself between God's plan, the ought to be, and what is actually happening, the is. In other words, Nehemiah cares. Nehemiah cares. So often we go through life and we see things that might be of of, of interest to us, maybe of academic importance, but we often fail to take the step from isn't that interesting or somebody should do something to I'm going to do something. I'm going to step out and act and I, in faith, am going to do something different. Now, sometimes it's something we see in the world around us, the social, the society, the, those aspects of things. You know, We think of the big ones. You know. I hate to say it like this. I say in vogue, but, and I hope this is not the truth, but like the sex trafficking thing that's good, the trade that's going. I hope it's not a passing fad for us and that we aren't just talking about the next terrible thing and then moving on to something new later on. That we allow the movies that are coming out, the messages that we hear, the news that we're hearing to move us to action, to do something. All of us 
who have the Spirit of God within us have the power to partner with God in redeeming this world. We can be part of rebuilding the ruins. In fact, God is asking us to do it. The way we love Jesus must come out in the way we love this world. When we consider the ruins of the lives around us, even within our own heart, what's our response? I mean, be honest, let the Spirit talk to you. Do you have a dislocated heart? Does your heart burn and ache and weep for some injustice out there, some disparity? What makes you weep upon the table? You see, it's all too often, especially in the place that we live, in the Western culture, in an affluent area, amongst people where we have everything we need to survive. The Bible warns against this again and again, that when we are satisfied with things, that when we are satisfied with riches, we lose our desire for satisfaction in God. That it's easy to insulate ourselves from the suffering that is in this world. So we think to buy more, save more, invest more, have a bigger house, protect our kids, do everything we can to insulate ourselves from the suffering that is here because of our sinful choices. The very thing that motivates us to seek that insulation. We live in a place of spiritual apathy that we don't even consider the needs of others or our own spiritual condition about God. I'll worry about it later. Why? Why is it that we do that? Because I believe that that is part of who we are, that fundamental brokenness within us that is sin. Sin has turned the mirrors of our hearts to ourselves where we were intended to reflect God's glory back to him and to the world around us, we only can think about what's in this for me. It's amazing the depths of the sin in our hearts. When we're willing to courageously look at that, we're so astounded at what we will find, I am sure, that when we turn to the Lord and we say, this is what's going, it's only then that God can begin to do something within us. So why? Why do we have such apathy? What is it? I think there's four reasons. There's four things that can derail the development of a dislocated heart. Four things that prevent us from saying, this is not how it ought to be. The first is disillusionment. When you're in your 20s, the world looks a lot different than it does when you're in your 40s. And especially different when you're in your 60s. That beautiful idealism. Every college kid comes back, says, thinks he knows everything, tells all our parents about how they're stupid and they don't know what they're talking about, and they have the answer. And then we just we kind of struggle between, like, I want to, uh, and I want to, uh. Um, disillusionment. As we grow older, we see that the world is not the place that we thought it was. We realize that making change is hard, especially when it's done apart from Christ. As we're growing with the Lord, we recognize what's really happening in our hearts, right? It seems like the older I get, the more crabby about my own sin I get. Disillusionment. We get this taste of reality. 
that the world is not the place that we thought it was, and it creates an emotional impact within us, a disappointment, betrayal, loss. Are, are you feeling that? I would encourage you to wrestle with God, to reflect upon that, to come to a place where we know that this is what it is, that we live in a world that is ravaged by sin, and as we look to the Lord for understanding about that and about ourselves, he'll give us insight on how to go forward, how to trust in him. The second thing that can derail a dislocated heart is discouragement. Maybe we tried. Maybe we set out to change things. You know, this is one that I think that resonates with me personally, is sin in my heart. I do everything I can to root it out just to fall right back in. I'm never going to say that thing again. Two minutes later, I say it again. I'm never going to feel that way. Lord, forgive me for taking my eyes off you and not trusting you in the situation. Wake up the next day, it was like I didn't even exist, the previous one. Discouragement. It's so easy to get discouraged by the sin that continues to happen again and again and again. It's kind of like unraveling a sweater while you're, someone's trying to knit it. We have setbacks and failures which turn to criticism and self-doubt, keeping our eyes on Christ and saying, no, this is not the way it ought to be and it's going to be hard and it'll always be hard, but you are with me. That it's not all on me, that I just need to do my part in the power of the Spirit. The third thing that can derail a dislocated heart is distraction. How many times we walk downtown Someone asks for money. We just, like, we don't even look. We're either distracted by our own busyness or we're actively ignoring them. I'm not advocating that we give to every person who asks for money. We're not obligated to. There's certainly not a moral imperative there, and God's not asking you to do so. God's asking you to be willing to do so. Tremendous difference. God's asking you to be moldable and willing that in the moment that he says, do it now, we do it without asking questions. But sometimes we're so tied up in ourselves, worrying about, you know, what's going on in my world. We're distracted by our own sin and fighting that. We're distracted by our circumstances or Satan, that we're not even paying attention to what's really going on around us. And finally, the fourth is desensitization. We just don't care. We've seen it so much. We grow to this hardened state where the reality of the situation is far from our hearts. So when we see it, we just keep walking. Nehemiah took the time to ask and to compare his circumstances, God's perfect ideal for Jerusalem, against what was in reality on the ground. He knew it was not supposed to be this way. He did not allow disillusionment or distraction or discouragement or desensitization to blind him from the reality of the ravages of what has happened. He asks I think this is why Nehemiah's expression of repentance is so profound. The city's destroyed 145 years ago. I know news traveled slower in that world, but 145 years, where they send it by literal snail mail? He hears about it, and you can see the way he responds. Fasting, weeping, prayer, What's your response to the disparity in the world around you? What's your response to the plight of the refugee 
They should have stayed in their own country. Serves them right for walking. They should have followed the laws. What's your response to that plight? Do you turn your eye, distracted, apathetic, or the person trapped in sex trafficking? Or the homeless people on the corners of the street? You know, just down the street, not too far, there was a, a woman asking for money. And uh, rolled down the window, had a brief interaction with her, gave her a buck, asked her where she's from, Eastern European country. I, I mean, I know what's going on there. Had I not stopped and asked, and I'm not, I'm not crediting this to me, the point is, is that if we don't stop and ask, if we don't take an active interest in what's happening around us, we'll just turn a blind eye and assume the easiest, that it's not the worst. We'll assume that everything's different than it might truly be. There are refugees right now walking from Venezuela because the country has collapsed under a dictator from Venezuela through Colombia, through Panama, through Nicaragua, through Costa Rica, through every country, all the way up through Central America, through Mexico, the desert, into the United States in order to not die. They're willing to risk that in order to do that. There's a place where Panama and Colombia come together called the Darien Gap. It's in the Darien National Forest. It's essentially a swamp. And there are women and children dying in the swamp in order to get here. Because the proposition of remaining in Venezuela is worse than the proposition of potential death and walking 2,000 miles to a place of relative safety. What do we do when we consider this? Do we allow distractions to come in and crowd out the human element in this? Do we weep and grieve when we see what Nehemiah's response is and we especially see it in his prayer to God? We realize that we have a place to repent. We must repent for what we have done to contribute to this world and the sin-ravaged society that we live in. Maybe it's your own life. There's something going on in your heart. You're stuck in a pattern of sin or dealing with the ruins of a life that was once close to God, but you feel far now. For us to intentionally ask takes courage. It's easier to ignore it all, isn't it? In fact, Satan and our own sin would love nothing more than us to remain the same and look the other way. When we look upon the suffering of those around us, it often implicates us and our own sin in the process. We know deep down we're complicit. Looking at the runes in our own heart forces us to come to terms with the judgment of God, the consequences for sin in this world. But there's good news. As believers, because we are children of God, redeemed through the death of Christ, we can stare our apathy and sin and disinterestedness in the face with courage, because Christ has once and for all settled our sin debt before the Father. What we find no longer is going to change our status before God. Think about that. I can look at all of the ugliness in me and know that God knows it better than I do. And that because Christ has died for that sin, that I can courageously look and see what's really there and only then walk with God to begin picking up the pieces. 
But many of us still live like orphans. We have to put on a good face even before the Father. We can't address what's really going on lest he go away. He no longer loves us. But Christ has made that an impossibility for the child of God. Do you realize that? The miracle and the blessing of the gospel is that even though you can never do enough to overcome the penalty of sin or the boundary or the the gulf that is between you and the Father on your own, Christ has done it for you. So we can boldly look at what's really going on here. It's only then that God can begin doing something. Of course, it all starts with repentance. Two. Bring the disparities you find, the what ought to be and what is, to God. First place we go. When we recognize that something's going on, the move in our heart should be to God first. We do this through heartfelt, bold, and humble prayer. We err when we think that in our own strength, we can work to reconcile what ought to what is. Social service organizations, NGOs, secular mental health counseling, and other humanistic approaches to human need have done a great deal of good in the world. There is no way we can deny that. However, to reconcile the ought that we were created for communion with God with the is that the world is broken beyond human repair necessitates that we do more than just give. More than we just work on their behalf. Only Christ, only Christ can reconcile this disparity. So let's look and see what Nehemiah prays. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice first Nehemiah focuses on the perfect and awesome character of God. It's about God. First place he goes. Lord, this is about you. He talks about God's holiness, his faithfulness, in his love. You see, God loves when we pray in accordance with our design. Not only were we made to pray, but we were made to pray specifics about the character of God. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. When we tell God who he is, when we thank God for who he is, when we declare to God Who God is, he loves it. He talks about God's holiness, great and awesome, majestic and terrible, mighty and strong. God is in fact God. Apart from him, there is no other. He is the only one who is exalted. In him is the embodiment of characteristics we use to describe him. God is not just good. God is good. God is not just loving, he is love. God is not simply holy, he is holiness itself. Nehemiah calls God by his proper name and addresses God's holiness. He says, Yahweh, O Yahweh, God of heaven. This is God's proper name. Did you know that? The name that God gives to Moses when he says, who should I say sent me? Tell him Yahweh sent you. It's God's covenantal name, his faithful name. Finally, God's love, the loving God who steadfastly sticks with his people. We see this ultimately in Christ. Verse 6, 
He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant, that you commanded your servant Moses. Second, Nehemiah recognizes the distance between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. He confesses the sin of Israel, he confesses the sin of his family, and he confesses his own sin. So in response to hearing the word that Jerusalem was sacked 145 years ago, Nehemiah's response is to confess his sin. What is our response when we see the ruins of the things around us? When we watch a movie about sex trafficking. Lord, forgive us. Forgive my family. Forgive me, for I, we all have sinned against you. Not, Lord, get those people who are utilizing them for sinful purposes. All of us are culpable in this. When we look at the ruins of our broken world, do we even think to confess our own sins? No, usually we distance ourselves from responsibility. We might say, well, no, I, I have nothing to do with sex trafficking. But then look at pornography that's absolutely motivated by all of that. We observe it maybe as something unavoidable. And we can go, this is crazy. We can go to dramatic lengths even to use God's word as the justification to not act. Let me give you an example. You will always have the poor with you. So we say, those are Jesus' words. We will always, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Okay? We take you will not always have the poor with you as a reason to overlook the needs of the impoverished. Or the one who shall not work shall not eat. And at the corner at the intersection, we say, get a job. God's called us to be good stewards of our money. So we hold on to it tightly and hide it under the guise of stewardship. This is exactly the kind of thing that we need to push back in our heart and to address courageously, to take the intention to ask, what is really happening in here? I believe it's impossible to do anything of value for God apart from repentance, but we often balk at this, don't we? It feels like groveling. Well, I don't want to grovel. Then ask yourselves, why not? What in our heart holds us back from groveling? What if we really are as guilty as the scripture says we are? And what if Jesus really died for every little bit of that guilt? So we try to make change based on some other thing. Some other basis, some financial basis or social basis, or we get angry or we get fearful. But anything that's not first and foremost couched in repentance before God is doomed to fail. It will be like straw, wood, and stubble before the fire of God's judgment one day. When we stand before him and our works in him are tested. Let it not be. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying if you keep 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather, gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Third, Nehemiah appeals to God's promises. Nehemiah agrees that the situation is a result of Israel's disobedience. We know that we've done wrong, but he doesn't stop there. He also says, and we also, I also know, Lord, that you've promised to discipline us because we were sinful. Check, did that. We were disobedient, check. You disciplined us, check. But, Lord, you also said that once that happens and we turn to you, that you will gather us back and that you will make your name dwell there. And he says, that's what I'm doing. We're turning back to you, starting with me. Lord, be faithful to your promise. We can look at God's promises as unassailable and sure. For God does what he says. We can look at the promises of blessing that God promises us to give us mansions in heaven. We can also look at the promises that God says that you will be disciplined for disobedience. Verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. Nehemiah already knows he's intending to act. Everything in Nehemiah's request, after reminding God of his promises, is spoken from this place of humility and dependence. Master, you have the power to change things. I have none. However, Though Nehemiah go to God first and ask his blessing and protection, ultimately his humility and dependence does not translate into passivity or helpless waiting, nor should it be for us. No, he confirms his prayer of dependence with intentional action. So finally, Nehemiah prays that God would open a door, would bless his action. And next week, we're going to see that God does exactly what Nehemiah asks him to do. It's amazing. But for today, our final point is respond by turning humble prayer into concrete action. So we're seeing the disparity around us intentionally, looking for it, bringing it to God and saying, this is what is and it not ought to be and I am part of the problem, I. And then turning it into action. Nehemiah does not stay in the prayer phase, nor does he pray that someone else should do something. Don't we do that? Someone ought to do something about this. Why don't they clean this up? Too often we do that. We fail to see that God in those very thoughts could very well be moving within us to be the person who does it. Because in the end, we were made for good works. It's part of our gifting. It's part of our mandate to be fruitful and tend God's creation, to partner with him in the redemption of the world. See, God has placed you on earth at this time, at this very moment, in this service, to hear this, 
that you might do good works that have been prepared for you from the beginning of the foundations of the world. That God has saved and redeemed you for a reason. And it's only when we are stepping out in faith and walking in that do we find the joy, the fulfillment, the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. Many of us come to church on Sunday. We say, I just got to get this filled and I'll be okay till next week. Or we say, I need my fix for the week. Oh, I hope worship's good. Great job today, by the way. I hope worship is good this week so I can leave fulfilled. Your week starts here, but it's not done here. This is preparing you for out there. This is preparing you, reminding you of the truth of God's word that you would act, that you would go, that you would redeem the world in the power of Christ. Look to the things around you. What needs to be changed? It could be that God's asking you to change them. This applies to our spiritual walk and to our fight against sin. We need action. No one is going to take the advantage of God's graces for you. You have to do it. You must be the one who fights in the power of the Spirit against the sin in your heart. Action. Spouses who only attend church at the behest of their wives or husbands. It's insufficient to get your spiritual food secondhand. You cannot hope that the people, places, or things will change around you to eliminate the cause of some issue in your life. Action. This is an important warning for those of us who are constantly pushing the people in our lives to live a certain way or to be obedient or stop doing that thing or to follow Christ. Ultimately, they must take action. So three points. Intentionally consider the disparities in, in, and then around you. Bring the disparities you find to God, for he is the one with the power. And respond by turning your humble prayer into concrete action. Today is your day to say, I'm going to start seeing the needs around me. Even the needs within me. The disparities that aren't, the oughts that are not matching the is's. Perhaps there's a ministry that you want to serve in, but you just haven't yet because you don't have the courage to start or the time because you're too busy. Today is your day. Perhaps there's some social issue that God's asking you to address, something that you just feel you must do it. God's calling you. Rebuild the ruins. He will walk with you. He will give you the energy. He will give you the power and the words. Do it. Maybe there's a sin issue in your heart. It's wreaking havoc in your family, stealing your joy. It's taking your peace of mind. Today is the day for action. Look at it. Bring it to the Lord. and Step out in action. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that because you knew that we were going to make a mess of this place. You knew that we were going to make messes of our lives. And you know where we are right now in our society and in our own hearts, Lord, but you made a way. 
That way is not a body of ideas or a school of thought. That way is a person, Lord, your son, Jesus. And because Jesus died for our sin, we no longer need to seek to justify ourselves. We can look boldly in the face of the sin that is in our hearts and in this world and address it in your power. So we pray, Lord, that we would be ready, that we would go home this week, today even, that we would consider our lives, that we would walk about with our eyes open for the needs of those around us. Lord, if there's that nagging thing that you've been putting in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, I I ask, Lord, that today would be the day that they would act, that they would address it, that they would repent of it, and that you would change the world around us through us the embodiment of Christ on earth. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We pray, Lord, that you would grow us and teach us to live like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbcelm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.